Hello and welcome to this, which is the fifth episode in our little sequence talking about the life and times of the Weimar Republic. And I'm joined once more by a proper grown-up historian who really should know better, who's here to talk to us about the essay and Ernst Rome, and that is Mr. Stephen Graham. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, I can't believe you asked me back after <laughs> however long it's been since that previous episode went out and much time has clearly elapsed since then. And in that time, have you got changed into a brown or a black shirt? <laughs> well, you just have to get whichever one is handy, don't you? Uh, uh, it was just whatever black shirt you had lying around. So the reason we're talking about shirts is because this is a special little episode. It sort of is not chronological because it doesn't fit into the chronological sequence of events we've been talking about. It's going to range through the 1920s and into the 1930s. It would very probably be useful if you were to listen to the episode on the Night of the Long Knives, uh, because that will just fill in where this story ends. So we will talk about the Night of the Long Knives, but we're not going to talk about it as an event. We're going to talk about it as uh, a response, really, a reaction here. Because we're going to talk about the S.A., the, and you can correct my pronunciation if I get this wrong, if you'll be so good, the Sturmableitung. Yes, that's it. Uh, who are the stormtroopers, which are the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party. So could you just kick us off by explaining what, what that actually means? What does it mean to have a paramilitary wing? What, what is that? Well, it's, it's men who like to dress up and are as soldiers and are armed, are trained, but they are not officially uh, recognised as a military force. Mm -hmm. uh, they are not sworn to any state or head of state or president. They are the private uh, arms of any type of enterprise. And in Germany, at this point, there were a lot of them. Yeah. There's the Freikorps, there's the Stahlhelmet, there's, there's, there's a lot of these ex-soldiers who've come back from the war and they've got nothing else for them here. Yeah, they've come back, they've found the people are ungrateful, for one thing. Mm. Uh, their sacrifices have gone for nothing. Uh, they also find the public a bit soft. Yeah. And I suppose one of the things that's worth talking about here is how revolutionary they tend to be. Because if, if you think of the, the vast majority of people only some of them are going to be politically engaged. Of them, mm. only some of them are going to be bothered enough to turn up to political meetings. Of them, only some of them will be interested enough to join a party. And of them, only some of them will care enough to put on a funny outfit and go around beating up communists. That's pretty much it. I remember, um, you know, there is the, the famous bell curve of people's political view where everything... It grows towards the middle of the political spectrum, mm. but the the inverse is true for political activists. Yeah, the, the the people who are in the middle, the most liberal, are the the fewest in number. It's the your extremists on both sides. There's they're the they're the ones who are the most into it. I mean, it's also worth pointing out that not all soldiers who came back from the First World War became violent paramilitaries. Yeah, um, most Germans uh, who came back from the war voted Social Democrat. In fact. And some became communists, obviously, but yeah. yeah, not all of them were these crazed right-wing uh, people roaming the streets. But, uh, but the ones who were were really into it. Oh, I, I, 
Oh yeah, and uh, they were tooled. Mm. They had uh, they had they had aircraft. They had artillery. <laughs> they had they they just brought everything back from Flanders with yeah. them. And because in in, in post war uh, Germany, you have to remember there was no occupying force. Mm. The other than in the west, the industrial areas, there was no uh, British or French presence anywhere in the country. So it it became a pretty lawless uh, place quite quickly. So uh, I, we can't really talk about the SA without talking about Ernst Röhm, who is the leader of the SA, and then for a, for a period in the middle he goes away, but then mm. he's invited back to take over again, and he's with them right up until um, the Gotterdamrung of the Night of the Long Knives. So could you could you tell us a little bit about Ernst Röhm? Yeah, well, I mean, as I mentioned in the last episode, he's an old soldier. He likes to uh, be with his men. He lives for the camaraderie of warfare. And he had welcomed the outbreak of the First World War with the, the same enthusiasm that Hitler had done. But Rome was a professional soldier. He'd been in the army since 1906. Hmm. Um, he was then, after he was wounded out at, uh, I think it was Verdun, where he obtained some fantastic facial scars from some flying shrapnel. Mm. He was sent to the war ministry, where he became an organiser. And this is what set him up after the war as the arms dealer to the right-wing underworld. Ah. And it, and it, this was not just to the National Socialists, this was to all the far-right nationalist parties that had sprung up around Bavaria. He was the dealer to all of them, and he was known as the... I'm going to have to get this correct. The Maschinengewehr König, the Machine Gun King. <laughs> that's fabulous. Yeah, so that's so you know he was a hard man, and who was, uh, yeah, he was he was wanting to sweep away uh, communism and also impose militaristic order. That's how he felt society ought to be run, with everyone knowing their place, mm-hmm. following orders, and. You know, and having their function. It wasn't now, until he saw Hitler speak that he fell into the National Socialist circle. And is it fair to say that Rome is very much more on the revolutionary wing of the party? He wants total revolution now. Entirely. As uh, to repeat the quote that I gave in the last episode, where he said, Since I am an immature and wicked man, War and unrest appeal to me more than good bourgeois order. Mm. He wanted people to uh, live in wholesome fear. He, he felt that people needed to be frightened to make them submissive and to make them obey. And that was the the grounding for the running of a, a good society, to his view. Okay. And in the early days, the, the role of the SA is, is what? Event security? Yes, that's exactly it. Uh, they were... Um, political political meetings in Germany were very German. They, were, they took place <laughs> in great halls with long benches and tables where enormous men in leather shorts with stone steins of beer handed out by buxom wenches as an umpaban played, listened <clears throat> to the latest political rhetoric of the day. Now, at these meetings, 
brawls and flying glasses were regular. Um, there was a lot of heckling. There was a lot of violence. <laughs> it could get nasty at these things quite quickly. Um, I mean, and these were the things Hitler liked this because even in the in negative press coverage, it was still press coverage. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Rome and his, uh, they were the Halschutz, the I think they were just called. So yeah, whole security, basically. Yeah, yeah, they were the men who were just present in order to uh, make sure that things were running and to eject any, maybe any communists who came, any, uh, you know, any hecklers. Mm-hmm. Hitler would give them the nod, the brutality would start. And the, I mean, it's worth remembering that uh, certainly in the early years, Weimar Germany is incredibly violent. Um, the, the, the assassinations and murders on the street are not unknown. There are a number of cases where the SA troops are put on trial for murder uh, mm-hmm. and assault because they're they're beating up uh, people in the streets. Yeah, so, there was even there was even an occasion when the SA broke up a meeting of a rival right wing party, and Hitler himself got involved in the beatdown of their leader and was sent to prison for a couple of months because of it. Mm. Um, so yeah, oh, this this atmosphere of violence was extremely prevalent. So in this in this chaos of Weimar, uh, with the economic uncertainty, the wreckage of the economy in the, the First World War, the invasion of the Ruhr by the French and the Belgians, the assassinations and attacks on the street, is it fair to say that one of the other things the SA gives is a, an appearance of security and strength, which, because they're so well-drilled, because they are basically a private army, because Rome styles them as that, mm-hmm. that... They're, they're a very strong propaganda asset yeah. to the party. Yeah, they can be seen as a force of order. Although uh, the extent to which they were successful in this is quite questionable because yeah, the Nazis were pretty much seen as thugs. I think mm-hmm. Mussolini's black shirts in Italy were more successful on that front where they started to... They were so successful, in fact, that they were eventually accompanied way before Mussolini came to government. They were accompanied by police on their outings to smash up left-wing newspapers <laughs> or intimidate socialist mayors. Um, but then the story of how the black shirts came about is slightly different. So just on a broader point then, these these paramilitary uniform forces, are these something of a feature of these authoritarian parties that are springing up? Oh yes, entirely. Well, in the in the in, in the case of uh, the fascist party, the the black shirts existed before the fascist party. Um, there was a um, they sort of sprung from a commando unit in the Italian army in the First World War called the Ardetti, who were who wore black shirts. They were rigorously trained. They were lightly armed. Um, they were behind enemy lines men. They were the toughest of the tough and when they came back they were disillusioned with order Mussolini saw them as something to latch his cause onto and become a Mm. spokesman for a lot of them though had no time for Mussolini they saw him for what he was this cynic who was trying to remain relevant in the post-war world yeah but 
he became their mouthpiece gradually. He eventually was able to gain control over them. But yeah, this um, this show of order and the show of force, especially in the in the face of this communist threat, that is the the, the main uh, the main issue that these parties have. Because you will notice in Italy and in Germany, when when um, there is that period of stability and growth as the as the nineteen uh, twenties come in, uh, the these parties start to fade away. In yeah. relevance, and it's because the threat of communism is not seen as as much of a threat, and so it's it's that thing of having that uh, that that image, that bogeyman, that thing to be afraid of, and mm. this is what is standing between them and you. Yeah, uh, and is it fair to say that the the essay, the membership of the essay, is responsible for driving? Um, the increasing extremism of the actions of the party because these are the people who are really committed these are the activists who are really on the ground and doing things and so i'm thinking of once we're in power and we get things like the jewish boycott and we get things like the the munich putsch attempt this stuff is being driven by these people yeah these are the these are the ultras of the movement these are the people, and of course, by that point, when you get to the stage of the Jewish boycott, <clears throat> their reputation is for thuggery and for taking people out into the streets, beating them in front of the entire public, smashing shops. They've created this atmosphere of, of fear. If you're walking down the road, even if you're just an innocent person going about your daily business and an SA man comes around the corner sort of patrolling, you're going to straighten up. You're going to not want to look at him. You're going to just make sure that you're careful and you don't cause any trouble with him. I'm going to come back to that and pick up on that in a little while because I think that that feeds into what happens in 1934. But if we could just skip to after the Great Depression hits, after the Wall Street crash and the American uh, the American economy collapses and they call in the loans and you have that knock-on effect with the German economy, mm-hmm. the, the SA then, do you think that as a recruiting tool, as a way to give these unemployed men a sense of identity and belonging, do you think that also... Is, is a driver for the success of the Nazis in this period. I'd say that's one of the factors. I'd say the one of the... Uh, that's probably the, when the, well, the, the hyperinflation hit Germany harder than anyone. And so that would be a much larger factor there. But you also have to factor in uh, things like the nationalist re- rhetoric of the Nazis. There were a lot of very young men who had not gone to war and so were swept along by misty-eyed patriotism. Yeah. Uh, among them, among them would have been um, Heinrich Himmler, who had only just become old enough to serve, pretty much at the moment the war ended. Uh, so th- these people who were bitter and willing to, they, they were looking to to do their bit for the nationalist cause. You also yeah. had old, you also had older men who hadn't served but were part of that misty-eyed patriotism for the you know imperial germany when things were running everyone knew their place the kaiser was there 
so it's this sort of harking back to something that's already a mythical past, even though it has only just occurred and is still fresh in the memories of so many people. Yeah. It's wanting to belong to not just a national group, but yeah, that elite of that group who yeah. are going to be fighting for the cause. Okay. So the SA is pretty strong when the Nazis get into government in 1933. Come 1934, you get the Night of the Long Knives where they are liquidated. Literally, mm. really. The, the argument given is that they're plotting a coup, which we know is absolute nonsense. Mm. However, is... Is it fair to say, do you think, that the SA is a threat to Hitler because it is a separate power base to him in the party? And Rome has the loyalty of these men more than Hitler personally does. That's completely uh, true. I'd say that, I mean, it was demonstrated as soon as Hitler was sent to prison and Rome wasn't that he immediately, even though the SA had been made illegal at that point, he was still he was still funding and make, putting together paramilitary groups mm. and continuing this revolutionary behaviour, even though Hitler was, <clears throat> was begging him not to, because it, for one thing it uh, endangered his chances of getting out on parole. And also he needed, Hitler was coming to the realisation that he needed to lead the movement and that he needed to uh, project an image of more bourgeois politics mm -hmm. and politics by ballot if, he want, if he's to win over middle-class Germany. So he's already diverging from Rome very early on at that stage. And as you say, his, um, Rome's... Uh, the, the sense of camaraderie that Rome could foster among the boys. Uh, they were, you know, they went on hiking holidays, shooting tournaments. They were, it was all lads together. It was a great old time. But, um, <clears throat> so that, that gave something for young, disillusioned, dispossessed young men that sitting in a beer hall, listening to Adolf Hitler talk for two and a half hours <laughs> about the evils of international jury. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to resonate with you. So, so yeah, from from that point onwards, there is a definite schism. And Rome was also unique because he was pretty much the only one of those of all the Nazis who wasn't under his spell. Yeah, he he never at this point uh, Hitler was known as Der Chef, the boss. Mm -hmm. Um, but Rome called him Adolf mm. or Addy. He was very familiar with him. He was. He didn't treat him with reverence, like the no. likes of, um, like the likes of Hess or Himmler, yeah. uh, would do. And so, yeah, for that reason as well, not showing the due deference to the leader, he was definitely marking himself as a danger. And so, the obviously, there's there's a massive carrot for. Hitler in disposing of the SA because by getting rid of the SA he can buy the loyalty of the army. Mm. But just to go back to the point you've you've alluded to a couple of times actually do you think another part of it is the idea that the SA by this point once Hitler is in power they're an embarrassment the, the thuggery and the the brute force approach is actually causing drag on the Nazis' ability to control the state and take over the state 
and they've basically outlived their usefulness. Yeah, I mean, by you know, once you're in charge of the country, you now have the eyes of the world looking at you. <clears throat> so it's not just a case of within Germany. There are international observers now looking at Germany, seeing what's happening there. And for Hitler to be seen as not being able to control the actions of his own party, especially when, remember, the Weimar government had won the hosting rights to the Olympics that were mm. upcoming. Hitler needs to make sure that everything is running smoothly before he really presents uh, his country to the world. Yeah. And I, I suppose the other thing, just to mention, uh, is obviously Rome's homosexuality is an open secret and has been from the very beginning. Mm. But when we get to the the Night of the Long Knives, it's basically trotted out as, we have just discovered this horrible immorality at the heart of the... <laughs> And, and yeah. that's not really a factor at all. It's a convenient excuse. Yeah, I mean, well, all of Hitler's friendships and relationships are based on how people could be useful to him. Mm. Uh, people did mention, I don't think, I can't remember if they were within the party or not, probably both, uh, had said to Hitler, you know what, um, you know, Rome's relationship is with some of these boys in his in his uh, group and Hitler responded along the lines of it's a paramilitary group it's not a church you know walking organization you know they can do whatever they like so uh, that's not to say that Hitler was in any way you know tolerant of homosexuality he He wasn't organizing yeah he wasn't (laughs) organizing Nuremberg pride or anything he he was it's while he was useful to him, he could turn a blind eye to it. He yeah. was, in fact, for all his life, he was disgusted by homosexuality. But that's yeah. another story entirely. All right. So if if we were to summarize then, would you agree if we were to say in the early years, the essay is vital? In the middle years, it's very, very useful but by the time you you're into government, it's become more of a hindrance than a help. Yeah, it's um, it's the same trajectory that the relationship with the Italian fascists and the black shirts were. Mussolini was able to bring them into the party and organize them into an official police force, as it were. He created the fascist militia out of the black shirts. Hmm. With Hitler, he couldn't do that. He didn't have the same confidence that Mussolini had in those early days. And also he had the the factor of the army to contend with. And the army, they hated Rome. They hated the SA. The SA was larger than the army at this point as well, remember. Uh, So that the army started to make, they started to make concessions to Hitler. They include, when they redesigned their uniform in early 34, they incorporated a swastika into the, into the crest that was worn on the sleeve they started to do little things to try and Nazify it, mm. to placate Hitler. And Hitler knew he would well, he would rather have the officer corps and the general staff on his side yeah. than a rabble. He knew Absolutely. Hitler the decision was made for Hitler on that front. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Uh thank you for coming and helping us out with these couple of episodes. Excellent. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you all for listening and good luck in your exams. <laughs> <laughs>